My name is Andrew Sykes. I lead a research lab called BRAT Lab. It stands for the Behavioral Research Applied Technology Laboratory. It's an organization that studies which habits really make a difference to human performance in life and at work and asks the question, how do we design the world and work in, in particular to make it easy and natural for people to practice these habits, thrilled by the experience and the support they get from the employer in practicing those habits. And I also lead Habits at Work, a consulting firm that brings this behavioral research to life and helps companies to future-proof their business against the changes and the competitive landscape that they face. I noticed there might be an accent. Where are you from originally? Born in Johannesburg, South Africa. I've moved around the world a fair amount, but still keep what I often call my Texas accent because it comes from the South. I did indeed live in uh, Dallas for a while, so there may be a little bit of the all of y'all in that accent, but it's mostly South Africa. Now you're in Chicago. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey leading up to your creation of your company? Yes. I started my first business in South Africa, which was a health insurance and a brokerage. And how long ago was that? That was in the early 90s. Before the internet? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Before the internet and before cell phones, before a lot of things we have today. And it was an interesting time in South Africa. Apartheid had just been dismantled. And with it, much of the legislation around, in my case, health insurance had been thrown out. And so in a sense, it was the Wild West. While the new government got its hands around things, there was an attitude of and an opportunity for experimentation in plan design and much else. And so I was uh, in the right place at the right time. And we built a very rapidly growing business, it grew from one or two of us to 300 people in a decade, revenue that doubled almost every year for most of that. You know, at the end of those 12 years, as it turned out, I had a conversation with my board and we had helped many companies manage their health insurance effectively. We had done what we thought was very good consulting work. We had matured our business, but I became concerned that it didn't even occur to us to measure the impact we were having on people's health and their lives. And the response I got back was mostly blank stares and a question of, I'm not sure that we should care about that. Looking back, it feels like I made the decision in an instant, but it was probably over a couple of months. Eventually, I decided that what I wanted to do is spend my life on the other side of the problem, which is understanding and then helping people actually improve their health. So I decided to come to America in the, at the time, misguided assumption that I would find in America the answers to how to design health and wellness programs effectively. So I moved to Houston, Texas, which I'm, I know is being devastated by the storms right now. But at the time I went, my impression of it was that it was a big parking lot. And I've, I've been back since and I just realized I was in the wrong part of town. But I soon moved on to Dallas and set up my first business in Dallas. And boy, was I in for a rude awakening. Trying to think, if you were in South Africa, did you have family there? Did you, were you married? Did you have kids? I guess I'm just trying to think where your switch is, like why you wanted exactly to come to America. Yeah. I didn't have wife or kids yet. I do now. I have three beautiful young children and a wonderful wife. But at that time, I'm the youngest of eight kids. And I spent my entire life in the same house, went to the same school for all 12 years. The first time I got on an airplane, I was 21 years old. And I think probably in reaction to that, Ever since, I've had a passion for travel in the one hand and exploring the planet. And I'm of the view that 
life's too short to live in just one city, let alone one country. But one of the things that drew me to America was an aspect of the American dream, which is I felt like success had come early for me in South Africa in my career. I now call it the curse of success because sometimes early success leaves you thinking that it's easier than it really is. But I wanted to come to America to measure myself and to compete in the most competitive country on the planet and see if I could build a business here. And any reason why you decided to go to Houston? Yes, I'm an actuary by profession. I describe myself as a recovering actuary because most actuaries don't work on the side of the problem that I work on today. They And I don't think most people might know what actuary is. So could, would you explain that? What it is, yes, that I was about to do so. We're people who study the science of mortality and morbidity or when you're going to die and how you're going to die. In every insurance company and in many consulting companies, somewhere in that building is an actuary pricing insurance products, assessing risk. We have a very long-term risk-focused mindset, and it's a mathematical and statistical training. So sitting in Johannesburg, I took the same approach, and I asked these questions. Which are the states with the most people? Which are the cities with the most people? And where are the problems of human health the biggest? High health insurance premiums, many people who are uninsured, high obesity and diabetes rates, because I wanted to go to the epicenter of the problem. I thought that there would be where I was needed most. As I said earlier, I was in for a rude awakening because what I discovered, I subsequently moved to Dallas, and what I discovered was, at least at that time in Texas, there was not yet any appetite to be healthy. There were pockets of it, of course, but the general population, I remember going to the Texas State Fair and discovering deep-fried Twinkies, and it was a sign for me that I may have been early in my attempts to breed a culture of well-being. And with that culture there, I'm just still trying to get my arms around. Did you have a lot of money saved up that you're like, hey, I'm going to start my own business there? And you originally what you thought was Houston and then moved to Dallas? Because it seems like a big transition to let alone move to another country, but to start a new business. Yeah, I didn't have much saved up. I had enough to buy me a runway of about a year. And so I certainly didn't have to come with $5 in my pocket, but I was very acutely aware that I had a short runway. Part of it was this mindset that I had that because success had come so easily in South Africa, I wanted to, you remember that movie, Rocky goes back into the gym after being defeated. I felt defeated leaving South Africa. It was extraordinarily painful for me to leave my business. I had overinvested in it. I said often to anyone who would ask, I was married to my company. And so I had feelings of regret and separation. I was not at all clear what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. In fact, I took a year off after leaving my business in South Africa, preparing to come to America. And one of the questions I asked myself is, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? And after a year of searching, I came back to this answer that actually health is my passion. It's just that I want to be focusing on improving people's health, not ensuring it. But coming to Dallas was a very lonely experience. I was in a city that I knew nobody, I soon discovered that I had one person that had worked for me in South Africa who moved there and he was already a good friend, but he became the first team member of my business. And in many ways, he was my anchor. And then I met other wonderful people there, people from the Cooper Clinic in Dallas, Texas, probably the repository of the world's biggest database of information about health and wellness. And they were wonderfully kind to me. And the people in Texas are amazing, but they have their lives and their families and their jobs. And so the root or the First couple of steps of an entrepreneur before you have a team around you can be extraordinarily lonely. 
And I know that it's rich for CEOs to say it's lonely at the top, but I'm talking about the kind of loneliness of living on your own and being in a one and then a two person business and not knowing whether people will buy what you want. As it turns out, being foreign has been a very advantageous thing for me, but it also requires more investment in relationship because people don't know you. They don't have a track record with you. They didn't go to university with you. Take some time to build that trust. And I think those are kind of the people that hopefully are listening or those entrepreneurs that kind of feel lonely that they're trying to listen to your story so they don't feel as isolated. I probably had the same experience where you said you may, you were in Africa before, maybe for a year before working, seeing if you actually want to keep doing it, where you had that success and you have some money saved up. And then you're like, what's kind of the purpose? So when you were actually in the US and trying to get over that loneliness, how were you able to keep cope with that and keep growing your business? The one thing you have to do is get out there and meet people and not just because you need to sell your product, but that's your access to dealing with the loneliness. And I've since done a lot of reading in business about all the great businesses. And one thing that I think is almost a rule is there are very few big businesses that were started by one person. It's usually two or three, you know, Jeff Bezos and a couple of others people make it appear as if it was just one person, but it's often a husband and a wife or one person who's the front man and one person who's the operations background. Even though you may have one idea and having the entrepreneurial spirit, I think two or three people are a much better formula for starting a business. Chris Marino was the, my person in Dallas, Texas, and him joining my business made an enormous difference to the loneliness on the one hand, but also just what you're able to get done. Having someone who can carry water for you, as they say, when you're having a tough time and vice versa. Tell us about that working relationship. I guess him being in part of your business, how that helped. Well, he has an extraordinarily good sense of humor and I'm driven and often as a consequence, you know, focus sometimes prevents you from laughing at yourself or smiling at things. And Chris brought that to our relationship and to our business. It makes a difference, I think, in any team to have someone who has a very rich sense of humor because we take ourselves very seriously in business, whether you two people or 300 people or 10,000 people. I think the glue of organizations is the people who can build relationships and trust and bring a sense of humor and joy and laughter to the workplace. It didn't make him any less effective at his job. It's just, in fact, it's part of what makes him a great entrepreneur and salesperson today is that rich sense of humor and view of the world that there's probably always something funny if you just look at the situation for long enough. What was your work-life balance then, right when you had started the new company? And was it called Health at Work Wellness Actuaries? Was that the actual name of the business? Yes, that's what it was called in those days. I wanted to call it Health at Work we named it Wellness Actuaries at Chris's insistence. His, his view was my actuarial credentials were an asset to our company and we should not shy away from them. And he was right about that. The original name that I came to America with was Panacea Health. Panacea is a word of Greek origin, I believe, that means a cure-all. And I thought that was a wonderful word, but I noticed that not many people had a deep understanding of what it meant. And one of my first clients in South Bend, Indiana said to me, you know, you should really consider naming your business something that people might understand what you do by. And he asked me, well, what are you focused on solving? And I said, trying to improve people's health. And how do you do it? And I said, well, we're trying to reinvent the design of workplaces to make them fundamentally healthy. He said, well, you're trying to build health at work. Why don't you call it that? And that was the genesis of the name. And with Chris, we added the wellness actuaries part. 
I think that was a good point by the guy, right? I mean, just keep it simple where people can understand and don't have to, because I didn't know what it was either when you, when you, when you brought up that word. Yeah. Tell us about that work-life balance, if you don't mind, about growing your company that first year or two. How are you able to, you know, what type of money were you making at that point? Well, that's an easy answer. Zero. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. For the first five or six months, you're on the road talking to people and trying to convince them to be your first client in a city where you know nobody, you have no references and you have no past clients and you're trying to sell them something that perhaps they're not ready for yet. And work-life balance was interesting. You know, today we say there is no such thing as work-life balance because there aren't two of you, a work you and a home you. And so don't pretend that there are, but I can understand the question you're asking. On the one hand, I was spending a lot of time in the gym because I had a lot of time on my hands. I didn't have a full day of meetings and that was part of the challenge. I was wishing for a full day. But outside of that, I was spending every available moment on thinking about why my business wasn't working yet and who could I call and how could I get connected into this network? and What is our product actually going to be given that what we thought it would be wasn't quite landing and the things that worked to convince people in South Africa were things that didn't matter in America. And I'd worked in other countries before that, you know, I'd worked in Singapore and Sydney and I had international exposure that gave me this confidence that I could make it in America. One of the things I found so interesting was I grew up in a country like many that had imported culture from America. We had American sitcoms and American products and American TV. And so I landed in America with a cocky attitude that I understood what it meant to be American. And one of the things I realized after six months is for me as a South African, the fact that we both speak the same language, South Africans and Americans, despite the accent, hid the fact that our culture was actually very different, particularly in business. I would have expected that if I was moving to France and the language that was different, but I was wholly unprepared for that difference in culture. And I now say, I I think like an American, I've been here long enough, I'm a citizen of America, but it was very clear to me at that time, there was something I didn't understand about the way people think and talk and the way they go about doing business and what matters to them. Now you have the Southern accent, so you got uh, <laughs> something going. But yes, of course. how were you able to get past that with not having the meetings, just going to the gym, kind of hoping for meetings, I guess, at that point? Was there a turning point in those early years? Yeah, there was a turning point. There was, there's always someone who is warm-hearted and generous enough to take a risk on you or where you really nail that first meeting and you're compelling enough. And there was a client like that. The Cooper Clinic was one of my early clients. They were one of the organizations in Dallas who more than anyone else believed in this message of health and wellness and were out front and center promoting it. They had cracked the code of helping people to become healthy, but what they weren't really good at was managing their own health plan. And that's something we had deep expertise in. So in a sense, I had to go back to my roots and work from where I knew as an access to working on wellness. So it was quite ironic that the business I gave up turned out being the business that allowed me to get started in America. So tell us how that first sale went. Like, what did you tell the Cooper Clinic that you're going to do for them? And what were you doing? And how much money were you making doing it? In the uh, early 90s in South Africa, because of the changes in legislation, plans that we now call in America consumer-directed health plans, meaning high deductibles with savings accounts, were born in South Africa. They were just beginning to become used in the US. So how I got that business was by sharing with them the lessons that I'd learned in South Africa about how putting the member in the driving seat of a health plan to 
own some of the money and be a great consumer and make their own decisions was one way of managing healthcare costs over time. And I told them the story of how that might be their own access to that. And, you know, they were already convinced that having people take responsibility for their wellness was a necessary precondition for success. And so the message of doing the same thing in their health plan landed for them. And so we uh, did the work to analyze their plan and show them that people would not be worse off and talk to their employees about the impact it would have. At that time, it was very pioneering. It was a lot of work for us. And we may have made $50,000, $60,000 of it for that first year. Enough to eat, not enough to live, certainly not enough to fund a business. But one of your first clients that has that first dollar coming to your business is perhaps the sweetest dollar because it's that sign for you that I think I can. And you still remember it today. So obviously it has a profound impact. But And you know, it's, it's not the money I remember today. It's the, the faith that Tyler Cooper in particular put in me and the friendship and warmth he extended to me. And the joy that Chris and I had when we celebrated that in our rented tiny little dark office, two guys jumping for joy and high-fiving and smiling at each other. Not the kind of behavior you do in front of a client because they might realize that you're the only client. <laughs> yeah. This private celebration we had between us. To make it as simple as possible for me, because I'm not very smart. So what would you do when you went in there and said you were going to help them manage these healthcare plans? Like how many hours are you spending helping them? Well, because they were my only client, right. <laughs> you know, I spent a lot of time on them. I had three things that consumed my life, which was investing in my exercise and healthy living because I wanted to be a model for my customers. Number two was hitting the phones and trying to find new people and build opportunities to go and sell. And every other moment we spent on the Cooper Clinic. You know, that's something I would say to companies today. If you want to get more than your pound of flesh, consider buying from a startup because they may not have the constraints of a hundred clients and they'll give you everything they've got to make sure it works. So you get extraordinary value out of taking a bet on some startups. They may not be around in five years from now, but you can count on them and their blood and sweat and tears and commitment and passion. It's hard to buy when they have 300 clients and the founder is no longer the person who deals with you exclusively. I could definitely see that. But I was going to say, you say it was taking up a lot of your time, but what would you do exactly for them at the Cooper Clinic? Well, there were three things. Number one was we were analyzing their data. We needed to convince them with the numbers that people would be okay, that the out-of-pocket costs that they suffered wouldn't be too great. So a lot of statistical analysis and getting in the claims data from the insurers and putting it into spreadsheets, that kind of work. The second thing was talking to their employees about the changes because they had very generous benefits and they cared deeply about their employees. And the idea of putting them at risk was very scary for them. And so we were talking to employees about what was coming and reassuring them it would be better, getting their input about what they wanted and why, and testing with them the ideas. And then the rest of the time was working with the management team who themselves were not yet convinced. You know, Tyler and his dad, Ken Cooper, were both on board, but there were many other leaders who thought that there were other priorities, who thought that the trade-off of change and destabilization for the promise of long-term stability might not be worthwhile. So we spent a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with them, working with their chief financial officer. And that can take a lot of time when they were being asked to do something pioneering with a company that was doing something pioneering. And they also had a lot of advisors around them, their health insurer, their 
broker at the time telling them that this was risky and unnecessary and something that could be avoided if they just tweaked their plan like they had done for many years. I understand from the broker's point of view, he's probably just trying to keep them on to make money on commission, right? But I don't see what would have been risky with, you're just trying to help them with a new health plan. Is that, What's the risk there? Is there a risk that I'm not seeing? Yes, there is risk, which is if it goes wrong, they're often the people that get blamed or fired, even though it was us giving the advice. If it goes wrong in the way that members have the benefits blow up in their face in some sense, they suffer big out of pockets or they get claims rejected, then they call the broker and complain and it can generate a lot of work. In fairness to their broker, they just had a view of life that the status quo was okay. For many people, risk is the same thing as change. Yeah. Just thinking from your point of view, selling, this has to be hard because risk averse, right? You're switching the status quo for them now. Now I'm starting to understand this risk. And you know, I'm one of those people that loves change. Some people hate it. Some people love it. Some people are tolerant of it. I'm of the view that change is the essence of creating a better future. I'm clear that there's lots good with the world today, but I want to work on the parts of the world that I think could be better and improving, especially since I've had kids. I'm really committed to building a future that supports them and is worth having. So I think it's, it's only worthwhile to spend your life on something that requires change and change for the good. Basically, everything that you've done since day one when you started your own company in Houston is the same thing as you do today almost, but you just slowly expanded and I guess tweaked some things? It's not at all. That was the beginning of my business in Dallas, but we used that first client and many after to finance what we really wanted to do, which was the wellness consulting business. And it's since changed many times. In fact, if you ask my team, they'll say, part of my problem is I want to change it every three months. And so we've changed the name to Habits at Work from Health at Work. And that's a reflection of the fact that we no longer work just on health behaviors. We realized we had cracked the code of creating new habits in human beings in the domain that's perhaps the hardest, you know, giving up smoking or losing weight or taking up a healthy diet are some of the hardest challenges humans face in the domain of habits. And we now apply that same thinking and approach to financial fitness and to employee happiness and engagement and to performance habits overall. We do training in the habits of successful salespeople and our business now is unrecognizable compared to what we were doing in Dallas 10 years ago. And I expect 10 years from now, it'll be unrecognizable. We have a saying in our company, which is, if you're not embarrassed of the work that you did three months ago, you're not growing fast enough. And so I'm always pushing for what can we learn and do better? And how can we find more courageous clients and do new and interesting things for them that haven't been done before in this country or elsewhere? Well, do you have any tips for maybe the solopreneur or the guy who's starting out his company like you were back in the day about happiness and trying to get over those hurdles as a young entrepreneur? I have many, one of which came from my own lesson, which is I found success early and I defined success in those days as growth, money, assets. And you know, I spent a lot of money on fast cars and a luxurious lifestyle. I was feeling empty, both in South Africa and when I came to Dallas. And what I've learned since, and it's backed by enormous amounts of research in our own lab and elsewhere, is that happiness more than anything else has to do with human connection and the quality of your relationships. It's the habits that you practice every day rather than the things that you have that make you happy. It's not status or income or power or growth or size of your business, but the contribution you're making, the meaning you have, the people with which you do it, the relationships you have with customers and everyone else. And whether you spend time being kind to yourself and others, 
being grateful and mindful of what you do and really working on your strengths. So that's a, a nice lesson to have in retrospect, but when you're wondering whether you're gonna to have to eat ramen noodles again next month, it's easy to forget that. And it is fun to see a business grow and to see the money come in. So my second lesson would be, if in doubt, get out and talk to people. If you can't sell what you're doing, give it away because you'll learn. Because the first thing that you need as a business is some people who trust you that you can point to at the work you've done. I know many people are wanting to build technology businesses today, but a lot of others are in what I'd call traditional businesses like consulting or manufacturing. I'm not sure that the lessons are very different for tech or other businesses around the need for some first believers. My other advice would be find a partner or a couple of partners, whether it's your spouse or a best friend or someone who you like and admire and who can convince you and you can convince them of getting into business together. Prepare for the loneliness. Maybe the entrepreneur that is feeling lonely, so that they're doing successful, maybe they made some money and they were at that point that they thought they had happiness and then they don't. So you're saying they need to get out, work more on their relationships and they'll find more happiness? Yeah. There's a long running Harvard study that looked at what are the things that predict how long people live, the quality of their life, the diseases they have, the things that they'll die from. The conclusions of the study are very clear. It's the quality of the relationships you have at every age, but particularly as you age, that are the biggest predictors of not only your happiness, but your health and longevity. And it's not the number of relationships that matter so much. It's having a few quality relationships. And those are not things that arise naturally. We may have childhood friends or college friends that became friends without much deliberate effort on our part. But relationships are something that you can build with deliberateness. I learned that coming to a country with no natural network, that it takes a lot for you to give of yourself and invest in a relationship. But you know, it's picking up the phone and calling someone and spending time with them and learning about them, listening and knowing when to shut up so that you can listen. It's a skill that one needs to develop. We forget that our friendships from long ago happen naturally and that today we may perhaps have to consciously build those relationships. It seems like it becomes harder with the age to build those. I'm 31, so I can't really speak for what I know up to this point. But you know, when you're in high school, it's easy because you're forced upon you going class to class. In college, I find out that maybe it's a little bit less because at least when I went, it was becoming more online classes. So there's more of that social isolation. And then as you age and maybe even as are an entrepreneur, there's even that more loneliness. And I think that it's difficult to find those value, there's more of those quality relationships or just quality. As you said, it's not all about quantity. I think so. And, you know, people have, in a city when you move there as a new immigrant, of course, people have their friendship network already. Some people might think they don't need any new friends. They've got enough. I'm not sure many people hold that view. But they're not sitting there waiting for you to come along. And as an entrepreneur on your own, clients aren't sitting there waiting for you to come and solve their problem. They're hiring someone else or trying to solve it themselves or don't realize they have a problem. So I agree with you. As, as you get older, it gets harder. And you'll go through a stage where all your friends get married and have kids and takes them out of the friendship pool for a while unless you have kids. They get busy with their lives and their careers. And you know, I grew up in a family of eight, as I told you. I don't remember my mom and dad having friends. Managing eight kids was a full-time occupation. Mm -hmm. So I can't say that I had this model for, as an adult, having people flowing through our house and rich friendships. And so it never occurred to me that that was something I needed to build as an adult. I was just happy with the friends I had as a kid and at work when I started my first business. It just hit me in the face when I came to Dallas, this realization that 
actually an absence of friends and a network is a big missing element in your life if you don't have it. It's funny. So I feel like you're almost speaking to me based on everything you've said, because I've found that over time that I'm at that crossroads where I have those friends that are getting married and have kids, right? Or maybe they're having their second kid. So I can't relate to them because I'm not married or have a kid yet. I'm engaged to be married. But, you know, there's a transition between finding those groups of friends. And you don't realize that, at least me personally, I never even thought about it till that starts going missing that, oh, hey, that's actually some type of social capital. Hey, I've been worried about making money this whole time, but then I'm missing this part of my social life and now I'm becoming less happy. Right. And, you know, we tend to think that as we mature out of our teenage years, that we're no longer subject to this peer pressure. But our research confirms that as we age, we're influenced by a smaller set of people that we see more often and we like more. We you know, we may go to high school with 4,000 kids, but you may end life with two or three people that are surround you. And I think the trajectory generally is fewer and fewer people as you age. And so people that are around you, they count more. So it really matters that you're investing in that relationship with a spouse or your kids or the few people in your business and really making those relationships count. Personally, I see this as probably an issue that's going to grow over time with social media. Do you feel the same way? I do. I think social media gives us the illusion of multiple relationships. But I think there's a lot to be said for what happens when you face to face with someone, whether that's the biochemistry of oxytocin and other hormones being released in your brain, that trust and the good feelings of time well spent with someone you love. I also think that this is well documented. When you're watching people's lives as a screenshot version that just shows the best part of them, it can make you feel depressed that your own life isn't all happy smiles and wonderful adventures and playing with puppies like you see on Facebook or other media. So I think there's something to be said for the richness of relationships, including the times when you're sad with people and when you're bored with someone, when you're angry with someone. I'm not talking about a rich relationship being all smiles and butterflies. I'm talking about the kind of relationships where you tackle things together and conflict is the recipe for growth. And I do feel like we miss that with social media. I'm as guilty of it as the next person. I, I notice myself not being present with my kids if I come home and I'm still answering emails. My wife is often annoyed with me that I bring my phone to bed with me because I'm still focused on a problem. And it's a constant struggle for me to put down technology and pick up life and be fully present with my family and with customers. Think of how many people go to a meeting with you at work where 10 people are in a boardroom and Five are in front of a laptop pretending to take notes on the meeting, but really, <laughs> yeah. the other four are sneaking messages under their desk and the, you know, the 10th person's asleep. Mm -hmm. That's what business and life looks like today. Yeah. I was bringing up, because this is something I saw, it was pretty funny, one of these memes. It's like, it said, 15 years ago, the internet was an escape from the real world. Now the real world is an escape from the internet. And it seems totally true. Do you have suggestions for people who are trying to, I know you have to be more conscious and I definitely agree if you want to grow those friendship circles, but suggestions on doing that if at certain points in your life, whether you're the entrepreneur who is in their 20 or 30s, because that's probably our main listening audience. We study the science of habits and one of the ways to do that and to change your habits, particularly your habits around relationships is what you just pointed to, being conscious or very aware. There are so many businesses that surround us with good intentions that make a promise that sounds like, give me two minutes of your time and $100 and we'll make you fit or we'll fix your skin or we'll help you to... Make your penis bigger. 
Exactly, all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> and on their own, none of them are bad. But you put them all together, you're living this life that I describe as a crowdsourced distraction economy where your life is designed for you by all of these companies. And I'm committed to people having a life that's designed by them. And what I mean by that is being very deliberate about where you spend your time, with whom and how. And awareness is one of the first ways you can do that. Just being aware of the many ways in which useful technology has invaded our lives. Now, you talked about work-life balance earlier. And my view is work has not asked for permission to invade our home lives. It's come streaming through the door. We used to work eight hours and then go home. And now everyone I talk to is at or on work most waking hours. And yet work frowns on us trying to bring our home life into the workplace. So it's been a one-way street and people are suffering for it. Sleep is bad. People are stressed and depressed and overworked. And part of it is just not noticing that that little red dot with a number in it that nags at you saying you've got two or three more emails while useful is also robbing you of some part of your life by the time you spend checking it five, 10, 100 times a day. Awareness is one thing. And what I mean by awareness is not just noticing that you're giving up parts of your life to technology and work. And I'm all for working very hard, but it's starting to notice what surrounds you and how that influences how you behave. The built environment, the spaces that you're in, the systems or laws and rules that surround you, the people that surround you, and even your own mindset, how that has you behave in one way or another. If you believe that you should be connected on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter all day long, then that'll have you behave in that way. If you believe there's value in personal relationships, it's likely that you'll behave differently. So even our own beliefs is something that surrounds us that is designable. We call those the four contexts of life, spaces, systems, the social and the self-context. And that's the material that you should notice and design so that you live the life you choose, not one designed for you. Do you have any clients or like case studies that we could learn from? Of, I don't know if a whole company comes to you or if you just pick up a certain person where you've been able to help them with their habits and have them have a happier life. We work exclusively with companies because the problem we're trying to solve is redesigning the world of work so that the work itself leaves people healthy, happy, financially secure and high performing. So we're very committed to helping individuals, but through the design of businesses. And many companies come to mind. And we work for all types of employers, big industrial companies, consulting firms, school districts. In fact, a school district is one that comes to mind. We helped a school district with 7,000 employees reinvent what it means to be a great teacher. The problem that they came to us with was they had high health insurance costs, losses in their health plan, and no one was participating in their wellness program, 11 people out of 7,000. And through the work we did, we got clear that teachers just want to teach kids. And their mindset is that investing in their health is robbing kids from their time. Now, it's a strange way of seeing it, but many people put others before them. You know, moms put their kids before them. Nurses put their patients before them. Teachers put their students. I would argue that almost every employee puts their customer and company before their own needs. The rest of the world thinks that Americans are a selfish nation, that we're in pursuit of personal wealth. And I found none of that to be true. In fact, it's not just an American issue. I find that people generally want to serve and spend time serving others more than themselves to the detriment of themselves. So 
how we helped that organization was we helped the superintendent craft a new message for teachers that said, we don't want you to be healthy for your own sake. We need you to be a role model for the health habits of kids, knowing that kids that are fit get better grades. And we need you to recruit the kids as change agents for the health habits of their parents so that we can break this inherited cycle of bad habits. And six months into the project, 4,000 teachers were working as active champions, recruiting 70,000 kids to learn and practice healthy habits in the classroom or in the workplace in their case. And it was transformative for the financial results of the business. But the thing that really struck me about their success was that teachers were saying, you know, I have meaning, joy, and purpose back in my life because of this initiative. I'm doing what I love, which is teaching kids, but I'm doing it in a new way where we'll graduate kids not only with a solid education, but in the best shape of their lives, ready to be energized employees instead of sending them into the workplace on their way to being type 2 diabetic with a weight problem and not having the habit of exercise. That's the kind of thing we do with employers is help them make an extraordinary promise to employees that if you work here for a day or a week or a month or 30 years, by the time we're done, you'll be in the best shape of your life. You'll have had a meaningful, purposeful, happy life with us and life in general. You'll be financially secure and it'll be because of your relationship with us. And we want people to say, I love my work and it doesn't sound like an odd thing. You ever heard people say, I'm so lucky because I do what I love and everyone's envious of that. It's absurd. The outlier should be the people who say they hate their work. Yet 70% of people says Gallup are disengaged from and don't like coming to work each day or are just checking in for the salary each month. That's something I think entrepreneurs should be thinking about is not just the problem they're trying to solve, but can they be a contribution to making work something that is fundamentally good for people? So we say, you've got two choices as an entrepreneur. You can build a business that uses up employees to build your business and serve your customers, or you can run a business that fills up employees. And I would argue that's more sustainable and you'll have employees take care of customers if you take care of them. That was a great example. Do you have one on a smaller scale? Let's just say I'm running a five, 10 person company and I've noticed, and I think it's what happens with a lot of people. Maybe they're super motivated in the beginning and then they kind of lose their purpose, if you will. Do you have an example of maybe a smaller company on how we could maybe revamp our work? We can feel that our company is probably slowing down or it's not what it used to be. Do you have any suggestions or a case study on that? Sure. I had a client in Green Bay, Wisconsin, not a place known for health necessarily about 30 people in a small advertising firm. And when I spoke to the owner, wonderful guy by the name of Jim, he told me the story of how most of his employees were facing burnout and were spending long nights, sometimes through the night, producing the work that they did for clients. Their business was suffering, but their people were suffering. Their dilemma is they had no budget. You know, They were trying to make a living, pay the bills. They didn't have the money to spend on some fancy initiative. But he sat down with his people and in his basement or the ground floor of his building. He, he worked out of this renovated church in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And after about an hour, someone popped up that they had bought some home exercise equipment that they've never used. It's advertised on TV as buy it and you can store it easily under your bed. And that's what everyone does. They stick it under their bed and it never comes back again. And people went around the room just saying what they had at home and weren't using. Two weekends later on a chilly February morning, 30 people and their families came together and they cleared out the basement of this company. They all donated their home exercise equipment 
and they built what to this day is one of the most impressive in-company gyms and wellness centers I've seen. That's just one part of the story, but I always say with companies, imagination is a great substitute for money because what they did was they built a very healthy A-grade wellness center in their business that cost them not one cent. The benefit for people is they got rid of the clutter in their homes, but they also had to change their culture and make it not just okay to take time off and go and work out, but realize that investing in yourself is what energizes you and gives you the stamina and mental clarity and decision-making to do great work for your customers. So you're not spending 15 hours a day on the job. You can get it done in eight or nine or 10. If there's a myth for entrepreneurs, I think you need to bust, which is working harder is the answer. And I'm not saying you don't need to put in 14 or 16 hour days to begin with, but it's what you do in that time that counts more than how much time you count. Hey there, one quick message. Hope you're enjoying all of our episodes. If you are, then consider subscribing to our weekly podcasts. Just search for Millionaire Interviews in your podcast player. And be sure to look for the Chuck Norris album artwork. Thanks again for tuning in. I think that's a transition that maybe a lot of early on entrepreneurs probably face because at first you're just like, I'm grinding, but then you're like, okay, maybe it actually matters how efficient I am instead of just putting in the 16 hour days. Because I know before I used to work a lot more, but I've gotten more efficient and being able to figure out how to actually delegate some of the busy work that you don't necessarily need to be doing left and right. And if someone were to follow you with a camera unknown to you, right, really look at how much of the time you're spending that actually moves the ball forward for your business. Oh, without a doubt. Because <laughs> that goes back to not even social media. I know what I used to read all the, these books on just tips to be more efficient. And the number one thing I used to always see people would have their outlook open with the ding, ding, you know, while they're doing work, I would close that bad boy down and work for two or three hours and then bring it up, you know, those constant distractions. I guess we're talking about not even just social media, but notifications. I think most people would be devastated. Yeah, I agree with you. I think some people would be very sad to learn how inefficient they are. So, you know, they say it takes 15 minutes after an interruption to fully refocus on a task. And we now have so many open plan offices where you're getting interrupted, not just by people passing your desk, but as you say, by these notifications every couple of minutes. No wonder people are feeling stressed out and distracted and not getting their work done. So having to spend nights and weekends and take their work home. Right to one of the fundamental habits of performance is designing a space for focus and flow, which means getting rid of these distractions. And again, just being conscious of it. I think we all come to a point where you just start figuring that out. And that that's why I put my phone on silent. Even if I get calls from clients you know, and I'm doing this interview or whatever, I've got multiple monitors that I work on, but I shut it all down except one and just listen to what you're saying so I can focus on it. I think the ability to focus is huge. So in closing, do you have any other life lessons or anything else you'd want to leave with the entrepreneurs who are listening and trying to get their own company started? Yes, you've touched on one, which is I think that focus is a fundamental skill. And we all feel like we're very focused, but it's worth being humble about it and noticing the world around you and the many distractions and temptations to which we succumb. And lately, I would say my passionate advice for entrepreneurs is put the love back into your business not the love for what you're doing so much but the love for the people that you serve your customers your employees be generous with people be kind to them i ran a ruthless business in south africa and i succeeded I'm not saying you can't succeed by being ruthless and aggressive but it, it is a choice and i hope more people consciously choose to build businesses that serve employees while they serve customers.
and do so in a way that helps people take that kind of kindness and love back home and solve some of the big problems we're dealing with in this world while we go about building new apps and inventing new services. Keep in mind the planet that we live on and the danger, very clear and present danger, in which it and the species that live on it are in. And yeah, Lord knows we have enough apps. So hopefully people are not doing that anymore. But like you said, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Someone wanted to reach out to you and maybe even use you to help them at their workforce or workplace. What's the best way for them to reach you? My email address is andrew at habits at work spelled out dot com. They can find our websites, habits at work or bratlab.com. I'm a professional speaker as part of my business and my passion is professional speaking. So they can find my professional speaking site at andrewsykes.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I would love your listeners to connect with me and start a conversation. If you're interested in us helping you reinvent the world of work and make extraordinary promises to your employees in the service of your customers, reach out. I'd love to be in touch. Well, thank you for joining us, Andrew. Thank you for having me.